Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at The Banshees of Inishurin by Martin McDonough. It was very interesting watching the Golden Globes with this film up against everything, everywhere, all at once. Because everything, everywhere, all at once was such an overwhelming script, right? Such an extraordinarily complicated movie. And The Banshees of Inishurin is such a simple movie. And I thought it was very interesting to see those two scripts in head-to-head competition with each other because they really represent the far extremes of the different spectrums of what a great screenplay can be. And the truth is, these are both really, really effective screenplays. As we get deeper into this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the more complicated elements underneath the apparent simplicity of this script. We're going to talk about the piece as a political allegory for the Irish Civil War and the troubles in Ireland that took place in the many years after it. But first, I want to talk about one of the biggest accomplishments of the film, which is to create stakes out of a situation that almost anyone would consider extremely low stakes. Now, there are going to be some spoilers ahead, so if you have not yet watched Banshees of Inishurin, what are you doing? Run out and watch it, and then come back to this podcast. So, Banshees takes place on a mythical island during the Irish Civil War. Um, But the Irish Civil War is barely seen, right? It's basically just some distant explosions and a couple of references among the characters. They live in this perfect, idyllic community, or at least what seems like it. In in fact, the first image of the piece, we're going to see this perfect rainbow, right, in along this beautiful town. Um... And it's actually, it's very, very green screen, but it almost works that it looks fake, right? Because it's like so perfect, so happy. It almost feels like we're going to start a musical or something. And we're watching this really happy, nice guy named Parik, who just loves his life and loves his sister and loves his town and loves his best friend. And we're just watching him on a journey to go find his best friend calm so that they can have a drink. And this is the normal world of this piece. It is it is happiness turned up almost to a mythical level, right? It's the kind of idyllic dream that we have of a home. It's the way this relatively simple man sees his home as just the loveliest place on earth. And it's not until page 55 of the script, that's 55 of a 94-page script, that the first truly horrible thing actually happens. And that is incredible. Um, That means that Martin McDonough has basically created unflinching drama for 54 pages, for more than half the script, without actually allowing a single act of violence to happen. He has wrestled one simple idea. Maybe he doesn't want to be your friend anymore. 
into nearly an hour of hugely compelling screen time with tremendous stakes. So I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how to build stakes in your movie and how to use the Banshees of Inishirin to understand stakes and how they're built. Building stakes is one of the most common notes that you will receive as a screenwriter. You're going to get this note all the time. The stakes are low. The stakes are low. The stakes are low. The stakes are low. It kind of felt low stakes. I wasn't connected. I don't know. I didn't care. Right? You're going to get those notes all the time. And often you get those notes and you're sitting back and you're like, I don't understand. Like, I blew up a school. I killed a baby. I set a dog on fire. Like, why are there no stakes? And then you see a movie like The Banshees of Inishirin, and for 55 pages, nothing happens. And yet we feel a tremendous sense of stakes. Almost always, when somebody says the stakes are low, it is not because you haven't killed somebody. Almost always when somebody says the stakes are low, it means either we don't know what the character really wants or we know what the character wants, but he's not or she's not or they're not going for it with everything in their body or we're not clear on how the character goes for what they want that's different than everybody else or we're not clear what the obstacle is right? Almost always when you get the low stakes notes, it's not about the plot. It's not about what happens. It's about, I don't understand what the character wants and what makes it hard. Because stakes are literally just what does she want? What makes it hard? What does he want? What makes it hard? That's what stakes are. Now there's another element of stakes, which is called threat. Now, part of the reason Martin McDonough gets away with not even having the threat stated until 31 pages into the movie is his name is Martin McDonough. You have seen his movies, or at least you've heard about them. You know about In Bruges, or if you are a play, a fan of theater, you know that this man is famous for creating the bloodiest plays ever staged, right? So part of the threat is that you know it's Martin McDonough. You know it's going to get ugly. And so you're waiting to see how it gets ugly. Just in case you don't know who Martin McDonough is, the movie is also called The Banshees of Inishirin. Um, Now, if you know what a banshee is, you know a banshee is a screaming harbinger of death. So you know something terrible is going to happen. Even if you don't know Marty, (laughs) you know something terrible is going to happen just from the title. So this shows you some of the power of the title. And even if you don't know what a banshee is, The first image tells you that something terrible is going to happen. The first image, and it doesn't tell you by being a terrifying image, it tells you by being such an over-the-top positive image 
We know we're not watching a Disney movie, right? We know that this is going to get ugly. We can feel the pressure inside that first image that's so over-the-top sunshiny, right, with its, with its literal rainbow. So we have all those elements going for us. Um, suggesting threat in subtle ways. And yet, we also have to recognize a lot of people don't know what banshees are. A lot of people don't know who Marty is. And a lot of people aren't going to realize that we're not in the beginning of a musical. That we're not going to watch a sunshiny story. So, yes, Martin McDonough is building threat, but he's only building in a way that the most sensitive of viewers are going to actually get it. So why does the movie work for everybody? Threat is a valuable element of stakes, but it's not a necessary element of stakes. What is necessary is investment. So we meet this character, Parik, and he's so easy to get invested in because he loves his town and he loves his life. And we know what he wants. It's actually the simplest want ever. He wants to go get a drink with his good friend. He wants to say hi to the policeman who never says hi back. He wants to go to the pub and shoot the shit with what he would call some regular talk. He wants to spend time with his donkey, right? This is what the guy wants. We get him. And he's shown up. And the most unexpected thing happens. The hardest thing for him to deal with happens. He knocks on his friend's window, Calm's window, and Calm just sits there smoking. He doesn't respond at all. And neither he nor we know what to do with it. But we can feel his shock. And at this point, almost all of it's being handled with comedy. He goes home to his sister, not sure what to do. His sister says, are you rowing? Are you fighting? He goes, I didn't think we were rowing. And his sister teases him. Ah, maybe he just doesn't like you anymore, right? She's teasing. It's impossible. These guys love each other. He goes to the bar. They ask him the same question. Was he sleeping? Are you rowing? I don't think we're rowing. He realized maybe we're in a fight. He says, maybe I should go see him again. Bartender goes, yeah, I think that's probably best. He goes back to his friend, right? So think about this from a traditional structure perspective. You have a character who wants something. Get a beer with his friend. That doesn't seem high stakes. The stakes come from his actions in relation to it, right? If he shows up, knocks on the door, says, screw it, and goes, gets a drink, nothing happened. But his actions, he's navigating different obstacles. First, the extreme obstacle, the inciting incident, the extreme obstacle of his friend going, not even responding to him. Then the obstacle of his sister not getting that this could even be real. 
Then the obstacle of the bartender asking the same question, not processing this either, but we're seeing him want to get this answer. He needs to know what happened to his friend. He needs to know why his friend is mad. And so what happens is we get sucked into the stakes of the same mystery as he is, right? We care because he cares because we feel him taking action. So he goes running back to his friend's house. He opens the door and goes inside, looks at a bunch of scary masks. His friend's not there. And then he looks out and his friend is heading away. He doesn't know what to make of that. So you can see we just played the same game, just outdid the same obstacle. He goes back to the bar. He orders a pint. And he tries to sit down next to Calm. Sits down next to his friend. And his friend asks him to move. Again, he wants to know what's going on with his friend. So he goes, no, my... This is the beer I ordered. And the bartender backs him up. Yeah, he, he ordered this beer. That's why he's here. Calm goes, okay, I'll, I'll go outside. And Calm goes and sits outside. Now you can see this is exactly the same beat as what happened in the previous scene. But it outdoes the previous interaction with Calm. So we've had three interactions with Calm now. Interaction number one goes to his house. The guy doesn't respond at all. Interaction number two goes to his house. The guy seems to have left and gone somewhere just to be away from him. Interaction number three, the guy chooses to go sit outside rather than sit next to him at the bar. In comedy, we would call this the game of the scene. And the thing in comedy is we know you just keep playing the game again and again and again, outdoing that game. And what happens is it gets funnier and funnier and the stakes start to feel higher and higher. But we often forget that there's a game of the scene in drama too. And that's what we're seeing here. And we're seeing how stakes connect to the game of the scene in the Banshees of Inishurin. Okay. So our character takes a new action. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to talk to him. And he basically refuses to leave. He says, if you go back inside, I'm going to go back inside. If you go back outside, I'm going to... I need to know what I did. Did I say something when I was drunk? Did I do something that upset you? And Calm responds, no, you didn't do anything. I just don't like you anymore. And with that bizarre little interaction... Our main character is devastated and he will spend the rest of the movie just trying to make his friend like him again. And his friend will take bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more drastic actions to end the friendship until things in the final third of the movie, after page 55, escalate into a full-out civil war. So this is the very simple concept that I want you to keep in your head. Martin McDonough builds 55 pages of stakes 
just out of a character who wants something real bad and who's willing to take actions that most of us are not willing to take. So most of us, by like the third time, our friend tells us, dude, I just don't like you anymore. We're going to be like, guess he doesn't like me. I'll hang out with other people. But this character just needs to be liked. He needs to know that he's not dull. He needs to know that he's not the lowest in the pecking order. And Martin McDonough, being such a great writer, just keeps on picking on that. The guy that he thinks is lowest in the pecking order, uh, Dominic, right? The, the, the gom, right, of the town, the dumbest guy in the town, ends up knowing a word, touche, that he doesn't know. Right? So he's knocking down his status. And what we're really watching is a character just trying to raise his status back up to friendship. We're having this incredibly personal journey. It's not until page 31 that we finally get the threat. And here's the threat. The threat is, if you talk to me again, Colm says. And if you don't stop bothering me. Or sending your sister or your priest to bother me. I didn't send my sister to bother you, did I? She has her own mind. Although I did send the priest, only had me there. What I've decided to do is this. I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears and I'll take one of my fingers off with them. Holy crap, we know what's going to happen in this movie. Calm has to cut off a finger. You both want him to do it and want him not to, right? So you're watching and you are predicting the future. You know that if the character does not cut off his fingers, you're going to be disappointed because you were promised some cut off fingers. And if anything less happens, it's going to feel like the air went out of the balloon. Like, well, that was a lot easier than he promised. But you also know that it can't happen exactly the way you expect. It has to go somewhere beyond what you expect because if we just keep watching digits get cut off one by one, the movie's going to get really predictable and boring. Again, when you're playing the game of the scene, you have to keep outdoing, right? You can't do it at the same level. So we know there needs to be some twists and turns. And then there's the other part of you that's going, I don't want to see this guy get his fingers cut off? I don't want to watch that. You're going, please, please, please. No, Parik, don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. And you realize the stakes are the same as in the slasher movie where you're going, don't go up the stairs. Don't go up the stairs. Oh, don't go up the stairs. Right. And you start to realize that the stakes are growing and your tension is growing because you know it's going to happen and you're just asking when and how. And basically, for the next 24 pages, what Martin McDonough is doing is building the psychological process, the structural journey, the series of choices, the series of obstacles that lead our main character, Parik, to actually talk to this guy again. And as everybody, including us, including all his friends, kind of knows, he's going to cut off those fingers if you do it. Everyone knows except Parik. Because Parik's a little bit dull. And because Parik needs his friendship to work so badly. So, slightly before we get to page 55, P 
Tarek gets drunk and we're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. We know we're like, oh God, he's in the bar. He's drunk. He's going to talk to him. And he does talk to him. Not only does he talk to him, he makes a huge choice he's never made before. He attacks him. And Calm has the most ironic reaction that anyone could imagine him having, which is his sister shows up and goes, look, Calm, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to make sure he doesn't talk to you again. And Calm says, it's kind of a shame. I, it's the most interesting he's ever been. I actually like him again. And we go, huh, maybe this isn't going to play out the way it is. But we know we hear that teapot whistling in the background. Oh, shit, it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But it didn't happen the way we expected. In fact, it's not until Parik shows up again and tries to apologize to him and goes back to being his normal dull self that there on 55, about an hour into the script, the moment that we would call the sea change in a seven-act structure, he finally does it. And again, even that has to outdo. We're terrified we're going to watch him physically cut off his fingers. We're actually not going to watch that. Instead, while his sister is talking to Parik, we hear a thunk. And Parik goes running out, sees his friend, calm, heading down the path, and then sees the blood stain on his door and the finger on the ground. And we have this horrible and funny scene with his sister where he goes, well, it's hard to lie, right? And he's got to explain the finger to his sister. And to make sure that we're propelled into the second half of the movie, most of us would go, oh, God, man, I feel terrible. I'm truly never going to talk to that guy again. Ugh, it's awful. No, no. Pirate goes, I'm going to bring that finger back to him. And his sister goes, are you an idiot? Right? And we could see, no, he's going to keep doing the same game. Even in the face of the guy cutting off his finger, he's going to keep playing the same game. And again, this is where the stakes come from, right? The stakes come from the character who refuses to let go of his want, even in the face of of challenges, obstacles that anyone else would be like, my friend just cut off his finger, I'm out. And a really interesting thing happens as he continues to break through to his friend. We've had a couple moments earlier. We start to realize that there's a love between these two. There's a really beautiful interaction where they talk about Calm's song. One of the things that Calm has told uh, Parik is, Without Parik's inane conversation, he is going to leave a legacy of music. And he's been working on this song called The Banshees of Inisherin. And he's finished it. And they have this beautiful moment between the two of them where they talk about the song. And you could see the love that was once there. And so again, we know what's coming, but it's not coming at us the way that we expect it to come at us. So we go, we go through all these twists and turns, right? And we know, we know it's going to happen again. We know it's going to happen again. In fact, but again, it's got to happen. Can't just be a digit of time. So calm helps amplify the stakes. Calm says, next time he comes, I'm going to cut off all four fingers. 
And of course, that ends up being exactly what happened. He ends up cutting all, off all four fingers. Meanwhile, our character is changing. We've met a guy at the beginning who's so nice. And no one appreciates his niceness. They think he's dull. And he starts to become not nice because he thinks he's got to be tough and he's got to be less nice in order to actually be loved by these people. So he's changing. Calm is changing. Calm starts being totally cruel, but we're watching little chinks in the armor and wondering, can these guys actually become friends again? And so we know what's going to happen, but we're also being misled by these little opportunities that make us wonder, is it going to happen the way we expect? And make us hope the part of us is like, no, 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 don't make him cut off his fingers. Make us hope that maybe there's another path. And that's where the stakes come from. So I want to break this down for you again. What does he want? What makes it hard? What choices does he make that nobody else would make that change him and change the people around him? that take him on a journey that both goes to the terrible place we fear and he fears, goes beyond the terrible place we fear and he fears, but doesn't get there exactly the way you expect. This is where stakes come from. You can use threat. You can imply threat. And sometimes you can even get away without threat, as long as the want, the obstacle, and the choice are 100% clear. We end up, of course, with four is being thrown up against the door. But again, we have to push it further. It has to go somewhere we're not expecting, right? If it's just going to be fingers, we're going to be disappointed because that was promised way back on page 30. And the piece is going to start to feel predictable and it's got to go to an unpredictable place. So at this point, we thought we were going to get one at a time. It turns out we're going to get one, then we're going to get four and we're going, oh crap, what's coming next? And it's Martin McDonough, so we know whatever's coming ain't going to be pretty. But what we don't see coming is another relationship that's been built that matters to the main character. And it's been built so subtly and hidden under so much humor that we haven't even realized it. But outside of his sister who's leaving him forever because she's tired of this crap and because she has an opportunity on the mainland that will actually let her live a decent life. She has fled this mythical island of tranquility and peace that's turned into hell. And outside of Dominic, the guy he looks down on, who's basically his version of himself, what he is to everybody else, that's what Dominic is to him. He's a nice guy, but he's a little bit dull. But you talk to him because you want to be nice, even though he's a little bit of a pain in the butt, right? That's who Hugh Pabrick is to the rest of the town. That's who Dominic is to him. Even Dominic doesn't want to deal with him anymore because he's changing and becoming less nice of a person. The only other relationship in this man's life is his relationship with Jenny the donkey. And it's all handled so beautifully, right? It's all handled for comedy. Again, using the same concepts, wants and obstacles. So, Parik wants the donkey to hang out in the house. Because he's sad. And because he loves the donkey. And because the donkey makes him feel better. And his sister wants the donkey out of the house. Because she is a normal 
intelligent human being. And so there's this running gag of him letting the donkey into the house, bringing the donkey into the house. In fact, once his sister leaves, he just lets all the animals into the house, and the house is overrun with animals. It's all played for comedy. It just seems like a joke. So you're not even noticing that a relationship is being built. But Martin McDonough is noticing. He's building that relationship for a reason. Because he needs to take this place, this piece to the place that you didn't see. And of course, what's going to end up happening, and there's also a little running thing here. It's so subtle, but you're always seeing Jenny the donkey is always trying to eat off the table, always trying to eat something. Jenny the donkey, again, there's a spoiler ahead, ends up choking on one of the fingers. And losing his sister, his best friend, the guy he used to look down on, and now his beloved donkey, something switches in Parik. And now it's Parik who wants vengeance. Now it is Parik who's coming after justice for his lost donkey. Now it is not just Parik the victim. It is Parik the aggressor. And Calm, who said all he wanted was some silence, some peace, so he could create some music, has brought himself to a place where he has no fingers to play music with. And where he has inadvertently killed the donkey and feeling guilty about it. In fact, I'm going to play you some clips later where I'm going to show you these two incredible scenes uh, with a preacher. But he actually confesses his sin of accidentally killing the donkey. So he's feeling terrible. But now the war has started. And there's this absolutely incredible scene where Parik comes to calm in front of everybody and says, I'm going to burn your house down at 2 p.m. tomorrow. And I'm not going to check to see if you're in there. But leave the dog outside because he's the only nice part about you. So we have this new threat. It's gone from, I'm going to cut off my own fingers and Parik just desperately wanting friendship again to a flip to, I'm going to destroy your home and you if you're in there. And Parik wanting to destroy his friend. There's also another mirror. There's a scene earlier where Parik apologizes and says, so, so are we even then? And Calm says, why can't you just leave me alone? He doubles down. And we get the reversal of that, the foil of that on the other side, where it's after Parik has burned down his house, looked back, seen Calm inside the house, let the house burn. It turns out that Calm did leave the house and the two of them meet on the beach, the same place the first exchange took place. And Calm says, does this make us even, right? Extends his hand. Can we shake on it, right? And Parik says, no, if you'd stayed in the house, we'd be even. This is going to stay with us till our deaths.
So do you see the giant flip? Our main character, through this simple want of becoming friends, the obstacles, the choices, the accidental death of the donkey who he loves, who is his primary relationship, having lost everything else in his life, has flipped from wanting friendship to wanting vengeance. And the guy who just wanted to be left alone and wasn't allowing there to be peace now just wants peace. There's been this giant flip in the structure of the story. And we've gotten to where we expected to go. We know this thing's going to lead to a bloodbath. We know it's going to lead to a war, but we haven't gotten there the way we expected to get there. We never expected Parik to be the violent one. We never expected Parik to be the guy who wasn't going to want to end the war. And so you can see what's happening here. We've only talked about this on a structural level. We haven't talked about it as an allegory yet for the Irish Troubles or the Irish Civil War, which we're about to talk about. But I want to show you first, whenever you're building an allegory, whenever you're building a script that is much more complicated than what's really going on on the page, you got to make sure the character elements are there. Your characters can't just be metaphors. You have to build the drama on top of it. In the same way, if you're building an action movie, it can't just be action. you got to build the drama on top of it. It's always about the relationships. It's always about the people that matter. It's always about what does he want? What's the obstacle? What choice does he make? How does the thing that he or we most fear manifest in his life? And how does it do it in a way that outdoes twists and surprises our expectations. That's where stakes come from. That's where drama comes from. That's where structure comes from. And on the simplest level, you can see how simple this movie is. It's a bunch of reflected scenes of first, I want to be your friend. I want to be your friend. I want to be your friend. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. That's the game of the scene. Then it becomes, I want to be your friend. I'm going to, I'm cutting off a finger. I want to be your friend. I'm cutting off a hand. An escalation of stakes to self-mutilation. And then it becomes this odd flip to revenge. Where the nice character goes to the vengeful character. You can see that's super simple. And it's unbelievably compelling. If you go back to everything, everywhere, all at once, you'll see it's actually the same thing. The whole movie, for all its complexity, is all set up in that very simple scene in The Convenience Store, which, by the way, is not in an early draft. That's a rewrite. It's really just a story of a girl who wants to be accepted by her mother. And a mother who is so overwhelmed by trying to control the world that she's not hearing anyone around her. That's the simple story that's happening, that's getting blown up with all this complexity. So whether you're building a simple movie like The Banshees of Inishirin, or whether you're building a super complicated action movie like, uh, like Everything Everywhere All at Once, you're actually building around the same fundamental elements. You're still just building a drama. And this is true if you're building just a silly comedy too. You're always just building a drama. And by what I, what I mean by that is you're building a story about characters who want stuff. 
facing huge obstacles, making choices they've never made before, and allowing the worst possible thing to manifest, but not in the way they expect it. You're telling a story of change. Underneath all that simplicity is something much more complicated and much more profound. So this is really a story about the Irish Civil War, which then led to the troubles of Ireland. And little clues about that allegory are dripped throughout this entire movie. Absolutely brilliantly executed clues. They're dropped in. You barely notice the little bits of exposition. But I'm about to read you the most important one of these. Pater, the abusive policeman, Dominic's dad, is in the bar with Calm. And Parik is very jealous because Calm is talking to this total jerk of a man. When he won't even talk to him. And Peter is extremely excited because he's being paid a fortune to go to the mainland for an execution, just in case things get out of hand there. And he says this, the free state lads are executing a couple of the IRA lads. Or is it the other way around? I find it hard to follow these days. Wasn't it so much easier when we was all on the same side and it was just the English we were killing? I think it was. I preferred it. This little monologue delivered by the worst person in the whole movie is actually the key to understanding what Martin McDonough is actually saying with this movie. What he's actually saying is this. We used to all be on the same side. We were friends, Protestants and Catholics, even though unlikely friends like Calm and Parik. We were friends. We were on the same side fighting the British. And we finally got what we wanted. Peace. But instead of accepting peace, what we did instead was start fighting among ourselves. We decided for reasons that I don't understand, that are not fully understandable, for reasons that are even uh, hypocritical, right? that maybe sounded good, but don't actually make sense. We decided we didn't want to be friends anymore. We decided we're better than them, or they think we're better than us, right? Just like Calm talking about Mozart, right? And how he's a, he is a deep thinker trying to leave a legacy unlike this dullard, but he doesn't even know what year Mozart lived. To use uh, Shaban's words, all you men are dull, but instead they're fighting with each other for reasons that they don't even fully understand. They've decided they are no longer friends. They are no longer brothers. And their stubbornness has caused escalations 
between two groups who once were unified in a place that had the potential to be idyllic, where the groups that won ended up destroying themselves and each other, committing the ultimate sin, first of self-mutilation and then of murder. Calm claims that all of this was just because he wanted to create a beautiful song. He wanted to create beautiful music that would be his legacy. But Parik's sister, Shaban, calls him out on it. It's going to be really hard to do that with no fingers. And Calm says, yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Right? Again, this is a clue from Martin McDonough. What is this piece really about? The battle is false. The claim of what he wants is false, even though he believes it. That really underlying all of this, this is a story about despair. This is a story about despair. You see, there used to be a banshee screaming. It was called the English. And the characters were united against the banshee. Protestant and Catholic, they were Irish and they were friends and they might have been oddly matched, but they could have a drink together. And sadly, the Banshee's not gone. The Banshee, just like Mrs. Hutchinson, the Banshee, just like the creepy old lady, Mrs. McCormick, or just like the banshee that Calm talks about in his song. The banshee is not screaming anymore. The banshee is just watching. Watching the people that it once oppressed turn on each other instead. And where is that turn come from? It's coming from despair. It's coming from a series of actions that nobody totally even recollects how it happened, a bunch of accidents that have cost both sides things that mattered to them. And this is rooted in history too. In fact, one of the things that happened in the Civil War was the burning of houses between the factions. So even this is drawn as an allegory from the actual events of the Civil War. This is about how these two sides that used to be together, oddly matched friends, turned on each other and lost their opportunity for peace, ended up destroying both their own dreams and their dreams of each other, and ended up instilling such a hatred that even though there's a part of them that still knows they're one people and they love each other, even though there can still be these moments of beauty, just like we have between Calm and Parik, that have cost both sides so much that hands cannot be shaken and peace cannot be made. And the story of that despair is captured in two truly brilliant scenes. Um, and both of them are played for comedy. And they're both confessions to the priest. So the first happens, we, the, we see the priest come to land. We get the sense that he's a priest who travels from place to place to place. 
um, doing a service here and a service there. And after the service, Parikh whispers in the priest's ear because he wants his help. He wants Kolm to be his friend again. And Kolm steps into the confession box and this is the scene that transpires. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned it's eight weeks since my last confession, I think. Go on, Colm. Uh, just the usual, I suppose, Father, the drinking and the impure thoughts and a bit of pride, I suppose, although I never really saw that as a sin, but you're, I'm here now. And how's the despair? Not so much of it of late, thanks be. You see, Colm thinks by cutting out his friend, he has cut out the despair. He is now going to live this idyllic life of music. He just doesn't want to tango anymore, to use his words from later in the movie. But there are two sides in this country, and it's impossible not to tango. The priest asks him, why aren't you talking to Parik Saliban no more? And Calm calls his bluff. That wouldn't be a sin now, would it, Father? And the priest says, it wouldn't be a sin. No, but it's not very nice either. Who told you? It's an island, Colin Ward gets around. Also, Parik asked me to put in a word like... I see. So... It isn't him you have impure thoughts about, is it? Are you joking me? I mean, are you feckin' joking me? People do have impure thoughts about men, too. Do you have impure thoughts about men, Father? I do not have impure thoughts about men. And how dare you say that about a man of the cloth? Well, you started it. Well, you can get out of my confessional right now, see so you can. And I'm not forgiving you any of these things until the next time, so I'm not. Well, I better not be dying in the meantime then, eh, Father? I'll be pure fucked. You will be pure fucked. So we have this wonderful, wonderful scene, right, that ends with comedy so that we don't feel like Martin's up on his soapbox telling us what to think, right, that drops in this simple idea. What about the despair? that points towards the truth that Calm doesn't want to look at in the same way that Shaban will point towards the truth when she says it's going to be really hard to, to make music with no fingers. In the same way that Calm talks, speaks to the truth when he really talks about the Banshees and talks about his own fear and turns that on Shaban and says, you feel the same way. And she says, no, you don't. And he says, I know you do. Right? So that problem of despair, but then it gets buried in this wonderful scene where the priest is just being hypocritical, right? Yeah, there's, you know, people have impure thoughts about men. How dare you say I have impure thoughts about men, right? This comedic scene. And I want to root this back. When you're writing an important movie, an important movie, when you're writing a scene that's supposed to do something for you, Remember, you're also writing a drama. When you're writing a comedy, remember you're also writing a drama, and drama begins with characters. Characters who want something and make specific choices that other characters wouldn't make. 
The specificity of the character of the priest is what allows this scene to breathe and not feel heavy-handed. We're seeing a priest we've never seen before. The wonderful hypocrisy of the priest who wants to open his arms to his brother who may be having impure thoughts about men. But how dare you suggest that I have impure thoughts about men is going to send the guy to hell if necessary for even implying it, right? That hypocrisy. It's a dominant trait of the character that makes him super compelling. It's also connected to the hypocrisy of all of these characters, right? In fact, the only character who's not showing hypocrisy is Shaban, who needs to leave the place she loves because it's become intolerable. We then get another fabulous scene with the priest on the other side of this script. At this point, Calm has cut off all of his fingers. The donkey is dead. And his former best friend has just promised to show up at 2 p.m. and burn down his house. And he shows up again for confession. Well, all the ones from last time you didn't forgive me for, multiple, multiplied by two, of course, Calm says, definitely pride this time. So you can see in the previous scene, right, Maybe some pride, although I never saw it as a sin. Now, definitely pride this time. And I want to compare that, and you start to realize, okay, so this is about despair and pride. And you start to realize what Martin McDonough is really doing is pointing the finger at both sides, right? He's going, it's the pride and the hypocrisy and the despair of both sides that has led to this horrible civil war and a hundred years of troubles afterwards. To forgetting that you're friends. To getting the two sides mixed up where you can't even tell who's who anymore or why it all started. It's pride. It's the thing that doesn't seem like a sin. It's Calm's pride that he is a wise musician leaving a legacy. But it's also Parik's pride that no, he's not the dull one. That there's got to be someone dimmer than him. That he can't have lost his friend. That they can't have been an odd pairing. His desire not to fall down the social ladder. They both have pride. And just in case it's not clear, Shaban's going to send him a letter going, hey, come live with me. There's a job for you here. You have every opportunity to come to a place of peace. And he's going to choose not to out of pride, even lying, pretending he's there with the donkey. Calm continues. I killed a miniature donkey. By accident, but... I do feel bad about it. Do you think God gives a damn about miniature donkeys, Colin? I fear he doesn't. And I fear that's where it's all gone wrong. This line to me is a devastating line. But it also speaks to Martin McDonough's deeper point. 
we've forgotten this simple little thing called love. We've forgotten about the things that actually connect us together. And it speaks to his fear that maybe God doesn't care. Is that it? That's what it is. Aren't you forgetting a couple of things? No, I think I've covered it. Wouldn't you say punching the policeman is a sin? Now, we haven't covered this yet, but why has he punched the policeman? He's punched the policeman because even though he doesn't want to admit it, he still loves his friend. And the policeman is given poor Padraig a really hard time. And he feels guilty about the death of the donkey and he wants to protect his friend. It's just too late. If punching a policeman is a sin, we may as well just pack up and go home. And self-mutilation is a sin. It's one of the biggest. Is it? Self-mutilation, so. You have me there, multiplied by five. And you can see that Martin McDonough's not just talking about cutting off his fingers. He's talking about the metaphor of cutting off his fingers. He's talking about how the Civil War and the Troubles were actually an act of self-mutilation that cost both sides the legacy they were trying to leave, the peace, the meaning, the everything that they said that they wanted. And that's why the priest follows that up with a mirror of the same line. How's the despair? back a bit but you're not going to do anything about it I'm not going to do anything about it no 12 Hail Marys and 11 Our Fathers and he's out but a moment later we're going to see how close he comes to doing something about it he's not going to do something himself he's going to sit in his house and let his friend burn him until finally he decides to leave. We're going to see a character who thinks he's just taking action against himself, but actually starting a war. We're going to see the way that what happens when you fall into despair and pride, how a vision for peace can be destroyed and a war against a common en enemy that would have led you to this mythical island where everyone could get along can in instead turn your home into a place you have to flee. And just to get political for a moment, because we're looking at a political movie, I think we're at a similar place in our country where we have two sides doubling down on pride and despair. And I think we're in a place where we're at a risk of bringing ourselves, forgetting our love for each other, even if we make odd friends, and bringing ourselves to a place where our country feels like a place we may have to flee. And I think that's one of the reasons why The Banshees of Inisherin is such a powerful film right now. Because it's not just about the Irish troubles, it's about our troubles. It's about human troubles. 
and even though it's told in what seems like a really simple, almost fairy tale form, and even though it is dripped with comedy to make the medicine go down, it's really a movie about despair and pride and how those two simple ideas turn us against each other and destroy our opportunities for peace. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. There is a full transcript on my website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. And if you're getting a lot out of it, come study with me. I have a free class every Thursday night online, Thursday Night Writes. And if you want to take your writing further, we have an incredible program called ProTrack that pairs you one-on-one with a professional writer who will meet with you every week or every other week, read every page you write, every draft you complete, and be your mentor throughout your entire career for a tiny fraction of what you would pay for a single semester at film school. In addition to that, we have a whole slate of extraordinary screenwriting classes and TV writing classes. So come check us out, writeyourscreenplay.com.